I'm Chris Brown and welcome to episode three of Radicals and Conversation in-house. This is the new podcast series from Pluto Press, produced in collaboration with Bookhouse, an independent bookshop located in the heart of Bristol. As you may be aware by now, every month alongside our regular show, we're also sharing an episode that's been recorded on location in Bookhouse as part of their in-house events programme. These events feature authors of some of the most exciting radical non-fiction being published today, and this month's episode is no exception. Rodrigo Nunes spoke at the bookshop in July about the themes of his recent book, Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal, A Theory of Political Organisation, which was published by Verso in May last year. The event was chaired by Birgen Guckmanola, an affiliated research fellow in the Department of Sociology at the LSE. If you want to find out more about Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal, just head over to bookhousebristol.com, where you can also find details on how to order. So here are Birgan and Rodrigo on Radicals and Conversation in-house. First of all, thank you all for coming. I've been doing this for like three weeks now, I think, just doing book talks. I don't even know anymore. But the way I found work the best seemed to be, I try to keep my introduction short, try to confuse you as much as I can, which then generates good questions, and then hopefully in the questions I get to explain a little bit better what the book's points are. For this general introduction, what I'll do is just to tell you about the kind of intervention that I was trying to make with this book. The idea was that the book could be an intervention that would work on four different levels. The first one is obviously theoretical. And someone pointed out to me that it's maybe not the best idea to lead with that one because it turns people off. Oh, no, it's theory. But obviously, it's hard to disguise that because the subtitle of the book is A Theory of Political Organization. So that's what it is. That's what it tries to be. I had had the idea of writing something on the question of political organization for a long time. Back in 2011, when the cycle of struggles that began uh, with the Arab Spring, then the Indignados, Occupy, etc., began, I started feeling, oh, this is becoming a more urgent project. And finally, when this cycle of struggles arrived in Brazil, around the same time that it arrived in Turkey, in fact, in 2013, I thought, okay, this is it. I'm dropping what I'm working on now, and uh, I'm going to dedicate myself to doing this. It took me a while to write the book that I had in mind at the start, but in the process of working on that, I realized, actually, there is no such a thing as a theory of political organization in the sense in which I would understand that. Normally, when people talk about the question of organization, if you look at traditional debates on that question, what they actually mean is the party. So there is a theory, maybe there is a theory of the party, or maybe there is a theory that sees the end goal of political organization as being arriving at the organization of the party. But we know from experience that organization comes in many more shapes and forms than that. So surely a theory of political organization should be able to also talk about all these different forms of organization, which actually entails several changes 
to the way in which we understand what the question of organization would be. For starters, it struck me as the unspoken assumption in debates on organization for a long time. What the question of organization was trying to answer was the question, what is the ideal form of organization? Or even, what is the organization that all of us should belong to? So either, what is the form of organization all of us should emulate, or what is the organization that everyone should ultimately belong to, which is kind of the idea of the party as this point of arrival that becomes the umbrella for trade unions, social movements, etc., etc. Everything becomes organized under the organizational umbrella of the party. If I'm assuming that what a theory of political organization must take into account is all the plurality of forms in which organization may happen, then obviously the question of organization can't be a prescriptive question in that sense. There may be prescriptive elements in the book, but I'm not prescribing an ideal form of organization. On the contrary, what I'm saying is precisely, well, if you're asking yourself, what is the ideal form of organization? Three questions you should ask next are, what do I want to do with what resources and within what conjuncture? The question should be what works and not what is some abstract ideal form that we should try to correspond to. I describe the way in which I was working on these questions. My method of sorts would be moving upstream and downstream, where downstream is a series of practical problems that I've, I'd encountered in my own political experience, but I could see people around me encountering. More worryingly, sometimes I could see people around me encountering them again. And I always say that one of the reasons why I wrote this book, that I wanted to help people not to make the same mistakes that I'd made. I wanted to help them make new mistakes, new and exciting mistakes that hadn't been made before, rather than mistakes that people had made before and had failed to learn anything from. Then from these practical problems, I was moving back up to try and discern, well, what are the conceptual problems these practical problems stem from? Are there ways in which we could pose these problems differently and dissolve them and make them go away, make those problems go away and discover new ones? Are there ways in which uh, we can pose these problems that make them become possible to solve rather than completely intractable? Or Finally, are there ways of posing the, these problems that maybe present them to us as being impossible to solve, but, that, but then what does it mean to treat these problems as problems that are impossible to solve? Ultimately, what I'm saying with the book is the problem of organization is impossible to solve in the sense that there is no ideal form that's going to solve it forever, but what something being impossible to solve means in practice is you have to be working on it forever. The problem of organization is not about trying to find an, an ideal form of organization. It is about trying to retain a certain balance of forces within organizations and among organizations. By doing that, I was also, in a way, trying to write a new operational system within which old questions like leadership, like discipline, but also like horizontality or verticality, could function in a different way. 
just because, say, the vanguardism of Leninist organizations was problematic, I didn't want us to ditch the idea of leadership altogether. I wanted to show there's something useful in this idea. How do we make this idea work in a different way? The second level of intervention was historical, particularly in the, the third chapter in the book. I start from like the emergence of the idea of revolution at the start of the modern age to talk about the ways in which this idea has changed since then and what that entails to the ways in which we conceive politics nowadays and the ways in which we could or should conceive organization. But there's also, and this would be the third level, a shorter historical span on which I'm working, which is another way in which I wanted the, the book to function was as a sort of balance sheet for the last decade. I assumed a lot of my public would be people who either came of age in that cycle of struggles or people who were maybe too young to take part in it but were moved by it, were inspired by it. And I wanted to start a conversation with this public about, okay, what have we learned? Because one of the things that was remarkable about the last decade, I'd say, was it was a very healthily undogmatic decade when it came to organizational thinking. People actually tried a bunch of different things. So they tried horizontality and or what they described as horizontality and leaderlessness at the start of the decade. Then people tried things like uh, Podemos or even, you know, as I mentioned at the start of the book, anarchists in Greece, which are famous for being Greek anarchists. Um, uh, even they were willing, or some of them were willing uh, at the start of the Syriza government to give Syriza the, the benefit of the doubt. So um, two things that I wanted to do were, on the one hand, to actually nurture this kind of absence of organizational dogmatism and in a way build a theory for it. But on the other hand, also discuss in the book, okay, what are the lessons that we can draw from these different things that were tried? And finally, through those three first levels, what I was trying to do was to make an intervention that we could describe as clinical and therapeutic at the same time. I'm using therapeutic here in, in the sense that's usually associated with Ludwig Wittgenstein when he talks about conceptual therapy. So looking at the conceptual grammar we use to think certain things and trying to see if it makes sense and point out to people, you know, maybe a lot of the problems that you're coming up against are problems that you're creating yourself through the way in which you pose the questions that you're posing. And I try to do a lot of that around concepts like organization, self-organization, leadership, you know, to point out, look, it's not necessary that leadership will only ever mean this or will only ever lead to this. It's not necessary that we conceive self-organization and organization as if they were the opposite of one another. And actually we can come up with more productive questions if we change the conceptual grammar with which we're thinking these 
practical problems often because like the point is it sounds you know if you talk about changing the the conceptual grammar that people are using it may sound like you're talking about changing theory but no this is the theory that is implied in the ways in which people pose practical problems and precisely for that reason it's important to try to make this grammar explicit and make people think about it and see how it sometimes creates problems that we're not aware of and are problems that we discover we can't solve. Um, by clinical intervention, I mean a clinical intervention on the left to try and help the left through some of the things that I diagnosed as the problems it has been suffering from for a while. And these are mainly two or three, depending on how you count. One is something I identify at the start of the book as a trauma of organization. The experiences of the 20th century, you know, the experience of actually existing socialism, but also the experiences of trade unions, uh, the many negative experiences that anti-systemic movements encountered in the 20th century have left people with a trauma of collective organization above a certain scale. And people have tried to rationalize why you wouldn't need collective organization above a certain scale in all sorts of different ways. And one of the things I'm trying to point out with the book is actually you can't rationalize the need for these things away. So you need to sort out your trauma. And the other clinical intervention has to do with what I call, I mean, this is a, a concept that's um, come back into fashion recently. It's a concept that was introduced by Walter Benjamin in the, in the 20s called left melancholia. And what I try to do in the book is point out, maybe we're not dealing with a single left melancholia, we're dealing with a double melancholia, which I associate with what I call in shorthand, please don't, don't take it too literally, the 1917 and the 1968 left as having been the two major models for social transformation that the 20th century produced, both of which were defeated, both of which came to define themselves in opposition to one another. And by virtue of defining themselves in opposition to one another, both of which became incapable of actually dealing with the fact that they were defeated and that they would need, they would need to work through the limits in their respective models. Since to criticize the model that you subscribe to would mean, if you understand yourself as existing in opposition to the other model, criticizing yourself would amount to subscribing to the other model, then people can never come to actually say, yeah, this didn't work, that other thing didn't work either. What do we make of that? And that is perhaps the most important contribution that I was trying to make. Organization is, is an important object for that because both in conceptual and in practical terms, it is precisely the thing that can work as a mediation between a number of um, opposing conceptual pairs through which for a long time people have thought political questions as if you had to choose between autonomy and hegemony, 
centralization and decentralization, micropolitics and macropolitics, actually, in real life, you never get to choose. Or you never get to choose one over the other. And the reason why you never get to choose one over the other is that you're always going to need both. This is the problem you're going to have to deal with, but there is no choice but to, to deal with. Now, go forth and sort it out. And I don't use those words in the book, but I could have, <laughs> I could have ended with that. Go forth and sort it out. Okay. Um, thank you, Rodrigo. Um, and thank you, Darren, for inviting me. I'll very briefly comment on my take on the book, and then I'll, um, I'll just ask you three questions to start off the conversation, and then depending on how we're doing with time, we'll move on to the discussion. So thank you for the book. Um, I thought it was a very timely and insightful contribution to debates around organization. Um, and I was particularly interested in how it exposes the binary thinking associated with horizontalism and verticalism. But also between the quote-unquote old workers' movements versus um, the new social movements that are thought to be separate from workers' movements um, and operating in separate domains. Um, I thought the book very aptly points out the historically incorrect generalizations around um, the old politics of 1917 and the new politics of 68. Um, and I thought it elaborates on the effects of the failures of both on the leftist strategy of today. And as you mentioned, um, you refer importantly to the trauma of organization and how organization now has a bad name. I think the date of publication is quite important as well. It was published in the 10th year anniversary of the 2011 wave of uprisings. Um, and so the book, I think, also stands as a stimulating critique of that wave, as well as a provocative contribution, um, corrective to the collective memory of progressive and um, left-wing struggles of the last century. The theory of organization that you provide is flexible, and it brings together historical and contemporary examples, as well as Marxist and anarchist traditions of praxis and political theorizing. You bring together these traditions by suggesting we think political organization ecologically is happening at different levels and different ways with different tactics and strategies and so on. And as such, the book offers really useful tools for both academics and activists to think with. Um, and you offer a range of different terms. My first question will be exactly on this point of flexibility, the flexibility of theory. Flexibility can be a double-edged sword um, with both strengths and weaknesses. And one strength is your theory offers activists and researchers in any context um, a useful language to discuss questions of organization, leadership, structure, um, organizational form, and so on. And yet, the other side of the same coin is the relative weakness <coughs> of such flexible theories to take into account specific contexts. When, for example, we talk about the 2011 wave that encompassed uprisings in very different contexts, we risk overlooking the differences among these individual uprisings. 
So coming to the question, as part of the political ecology of political action, different political regimes allow for or shape and are shaped by different level styles, tactics, strategies of resistance that mark specific uprisings. Um, I think we would agree on that. Um, so could you tell us a bit more about how you imagine different political ecologies um, of resistance to look like across different political regimes? First of all, Thank you, Birgen. This is interesting. Now that I've finally, I'm finally having the chance to discuss the book in rooms of people, some of which at least have already had the chance to read the book, different forms of the first question you asked keep popping up again. And it has to do with what was a fairly conscious strategy in the sense that I I did want the book to be fairly indeterminate as to its political conclusions. There's several places in the book where it's like I'm writing a bracket and saying, your politics goes here. First of all, you know, I wanted the book to be able to speak to people coming from several different traditions. So I wanted it to be sufficiently indeterminate that people from different political traditions could find themselves in the book and could find a common language in the book that they could use to talk to other people. Obviously, there is a price to pay for that, which is, you know, some things have to be left fuzzier, but I thought it was a price worth paying. And, you know, if people want to hear me on a more concrete analysis on the Brazilian situation right now, well, there's a book that's just come out about that, sadly in Portuguese. So first you're gonna to have to learn Portuguese. Uh, but you know, it's about time. It's not that I'm refusing to make more concrete analysis altogether. It was just that I wanted there to be a sufficient indeterminacy between the book's premises and the conclusions that different people could draw from the book because they would be coming into those premises with their own premises, and then that could naturally lead in different directions, and I was okay with that, because you know this kind of variety is a necessary part of a political ecology. But also I wanted to keep a certain distance between myself and the book, in the sense that there are concrete conclusions that I can come to, starting from the premises in the book, adding other premises that you know I bring to these discussions personally, but I wanted it to be clear that the book was one thing and I was a different thing. I wanted to be just another person who can draw conclusions from the book rather than being the person who decides what the right conclusions to draw from the book are. In that sense, I mean, one theoretical father figure perhaps that returns uh, in the book several times is uh, Spinoza. Spinoza's ethics is basically a set of premises from which he's drawn some conclusions, but when you read the ethics, you have the impression that the book could be written indefinitely because you have a set of starting premises and there's loads more conclusions than Spinoza actually managed to write down. And I was trying to write a book that could function in that way as well. For example, you know, how do you deal with different state formations? Or how do you deal 
with different capital formations? Or how do you deal with different strategies on the part of your enemy? For example, the Brazilian case, the 2013 protests in Brazil happened more or less at the same time as the Gezi Park protests in Turkey. And Brazil was a fairly unique case among that cycle of struggles in the sense that at one point, both the corporate media and the right wing decided we're not going to attack the protests, we're going to support the protests and we're going to try and re-signify them. We're going to try and say that there's something else than they were. This is a completely different strategy to pretty much all the other cases, which would imply different solutions. I would like to think that some of the premises there are in the book would be useful to people dealing with that problem. Like they could apply some of the, the ways of thinking that the book tries to propose to a concrete problem like that. I certainly could have done more of a work of, you know, pointing out these concrete instances and okay, this is how this could work in this concrete instance in the book. But at the end of the day, for me, it was more important precisely to propose these ways of thinking that could be useful to people in different situations than trying to work out the various different situations. But it is particularly, I would say, in relation to um, the relationship to the state, I would say, yes, this is something that the book deals with insufficiently. Like, that certainly could have been more that was said on, you know, okay, how does your political ecology deal with heavier state repression or how does it deal with a political system that's willing to continue to operate without any semblance of legitimacy but can just carry on regardless. There would have been more to say about that, but that was outside of the scope that I had defined for myself. I mean, at the end of the day, perhaps very frustratingly, all I could say in response to your question is, this will always be down to the concrete analysis of the concrete situation. I hope that some of the, the premises that I propose in the book will be useful to people doing that concrete analysis. I'm sure as I think more about these questions, or hopefully as other people think more about these questions, they'll be able to add different premises to the original set and yeah, make this kind of analysis richer. The second question is, when I was reading the book, I often found myself thinking about feminist movements across the world. And I think feminist movements in the plural are a good example of thinking political organization ecologically, since they've been evolving and adapting, devising new methods of strategies, um, uh, new tactics, engaging in political action um, across different classes, genders, national borders, and also at different levels. You do mention feminist movements, but only briefly. I was wondering, are there any movements past or present that you've been inspired by when writing the book? Are there any movements that you think can be an example of your theory of organization? Specifically, feminist movements. I mean, that was what I had in mind, but maybe you have different mm -hmm. movements in mind. In relation to feminist movements, um, a, a friend of mine flagged or pointed out something interesting, which is the references to 
uh, feminist movements. I mean, there is a discussion of women's lib and gay lib right, right at the start that I use as a, an example. But after that, the, the references to feminist movements become rarer. And there are no references to like the most contemporary feminist movements, in part because they were, you know, ni una menos, etc. They were becoming huge exactly as I was writing the book. And then I made, for the sake of my own sanity, I made a decision of like, okay, I, d I can't keep including whatever new thing turns up. I have to draw the line somewhere and decide I'm not going to look into this. So I only looked at it very peripherally. And perhaps by the time I did, the book was pretty much written. But this friend of mine, pointed out that there is something that isn't flagged in the book as coming from uh, feminist movements, but could be recognized as such, which is the centering of social reproduction. I would say for my politics, that is the one thing, or perhaps the two major things that I would say I learned from feminist movements. First, the centering of social reproduction, and then you know we can go back to wages for housework, you know, the movements in the 70s, the work of people like Silvia Federici and Maria Rosa de la Costa. And the other thing would be, which actually turns up towards the end, after most of the discussion on leadership in the book has already taken place. But then in the last chapter, I make this reference to the conversation in Spain about what they call the feminization of politics, and which among other things, amounts to a completely different idea of leadership. The idea of the leader as someone who takes care rather than the leader as a hero, the leader as you know, this unique figure. Actually, the leader is someone who... That I remember at the time, a friend of mine, uh, Amador Fernandez Sabater, he, uh, who's very connected to, to the 15... M movement in Spain, he wrote a column in a newspaper, which was really brilliant because he, he said, yeah, all these um, management people, they're absolutely right when they say we should aim to be the leader of the pack. Because actually, if you look at the behavior of wolves, the leader of the pack is an excellent leader. He's constantly going to the back of the pack to make sure that no one gets lost. He's constantly like taking care of everyone. So actually, the leader of the pack would be it's clearly not what management people mean, but would actually be a great example of leadership. My third question is, one of the main arguments of the book is that an ecological perspective on political organization is necessary, um, especially with regards to the climate crisis. Could you elaborate on how an ecology of political action regarding climate justice looks like or should look like. And related to this, how would your theory account for power differentials between different national contexts in such a transnational crisis? I mean, this is, this is kind of the note. So the connection between an ecological perspective on organization and climate change is something that appears right at the start of the book and then towards the conclusion. At the start of the book, the reason why it's there is, I think the great thing about climate change, perhaps a sentence we don't hear that often, uh, but the great thing about climate change as a political problem 
is it really brings home the question of scale. It's like you can't ignore scale. And you could try to do, as people often did, to rationalize scale away. You could say, oh, but you know, it's still possible that lots of local initiatives at some point will just click into this major systemic change. And the answer to that is, well, that is the political equivalent of the infinite monkey theorem. It's perfectly possible that an infinite amount of monkeys working for an infinite amount of time will come up with the complete works of William Shakespeare. The problem is we have neither an infinite amount of time nor, for that matter, an infinite amount of monkeys. So this is a dead end as a political wager when we know what our best science today tells us about the window available for action on climate change. And the conclusion there is, well, in a sense, you can only ever act locally. Obviously, there is no global as such that you could act on. The global in itself, it is just an emergent effect of people acting on the local level. The problem is local is always a scale relative term. A country is local in relation to the planet. A city is local in relation to a country. And a garden allotment is local in relation to the city. Therefore, local cannot only mean garden allotments. It's not through garden allotments alone that we're going to incapacitate the fossil fuel industry forever. I regret to say it would have been nicer, but sadly, that's not true. So in a way, you're only ever acting locally, but local means different things as you move up scale. And you need a combination of action at different scales to deal with the problem of this magnitude, especially within the time frame that is available to us. So yeah, in that sense, climate change functions almost as a thought experiment to like focus the mind on, on the problem of scale. But then it comes back uh, at the end when I suggest, well, maybe we should invert the ways in which especially the Marxist tradition has conceived the relationship between revolution and transition, transition being something that takes place after a revolution. But revolution is something that's not thinkable at the global level precisely because there's no global state apparatus that you could take to initiate a process of transition. Therefore, instead of transition being something that follows a revolution, revolution or revolutions at different scale perhaps being part of a process of global systemic transition. Now, one of the things that that would involve is dealing with power differentials among different parts of the globe or different and different populations, but also the relationships between different parts of the globe that are entailed in the global division of labor. So, for example, fully automated luxury communism is a brilliant slogan if you're trying to convince people in the UK, if you're basically trying to tell people, young people in the UK who are very legitimately pissed off with the fact that they are clearly getting the short end of the stick in historical terms, it's a great way of telling people, look, things could be different. And you'd still have your iPad, you would still have your iPhone, you would still have 
Spotify, you'd still have TikTok. I'm not saying we shouldn't have versions of those things. The problem is you can't have a solution that works for people in one place at the cost of not working for people elsewhere. Like, if that is your solution, then that is not a solution or that's not the solution we are looking for. Maybe there is no solution that could solve all these problems at once, but that certainly clears the mind in terms of, you know, what we should be striving for politically. If we all die trying, it's still better than to die without having tried, which is clearly the other option at this point. So, you know, you might as well. Um, so thank you very much for those answers. Um, if the audience has any questions, I think we can move on. I have a question about experimentation and, uh, and the problem of scale. So, and about whether we should be sort of horizontalists or, or leaderful or whether we should sort of toe the party line. Because if you're serious about the notion that really you have to organise locally to have an effect and there isn't anywhere else that we can organise except at the local level and so really we are talking about an infinite number of monkeys and an infinite amount of time because I know we don't have an infinite amount of time but we do have an infinite amount of monkeys at least in principle uh, because that's us, right? And if you're serious about experimentation and you are but let's say that in the book you sort of pull back from this notion that the party is the organisational form through which we organise the general mass or the general will then basically you're only left with anarchist politics. So you, you can only do the horizontal or some approximation of it. Actually, if you were looking at this as a pendulum or a needle, it will never get to the leader. Because if you're serious about experimentation in the local, that's as high as the needle will ever go. And we can only ever do that experimentation. And we, the linking up is always going to be improvised. And I'm concerned that ultimately what we're really looking at is a problem of the people against entrenched capital interests. And, you know, we're watching a pantomime of the Tory party go through the motions at the moment. I don't see any viable left alternative that is a, either party-based or social movement-based. The RMT aren't going to take us to the future. You know, they're talking good politics, and I like what Mick Lynch is doing, but, you know, that's not the, that's not the end point. But does the book not have a position on that? Because ultimately, if it's just experimentation and, you know, the needle never really gets to vertical, and the problem that we face, actually, we need some sort of coordinated action that's going to bring capitalism down such that we can save the planet from itself. Then does the book not give us something that tells us what the answer to that is? Uh, since you said, you know, here, insert your politics here, I was thinking about this a lot since last month, which is the, how successful the sort of anti-abortion campaign has mm. been. And oh, they, right, that right. is a truly ecological movement. Yeah. They have you know, they have uh, street gangs, they have uh, lawyers who invented a whole new legal theory, crazy legal theory that is accepted and by now accepted and practiced by the top jurors of the United States, top elite law schools, which is called originalism, uh, which is the completely insane theory, yeah. um, you know, invented for the purpose of defending Roe v. Wade, defeating Roe v. Wade. They have politicians, of course, but they also have uh, crisis pregnancy centers where they pretend to be kind of places where pregnant people with doubts can go to and then they try to coerce them into not having abortions. And so, so they have that whole panoply, a whole range of things. Not necessarily connected, right? Uh, not necessarily adoption places, yeah. Not necessarily connected, right? But, but the, the mood in the room is like you don't have to be connected to 
understand what each other are kind of doing, and there's a sort of form of ecological organization that's mm -hmm. highly effective. So perhaps the book could also sort of be used to organize sort of fascist movements. Is yeah. that a, a sign of success? Or? <laughs> um, for them. <laughs> now, I think the Roe versus Wade question kind of answers the, the second question in the sense that you, you were saying, if you uh, reject the idea that you know, we need to work towards the party as the center of what we're doing, then the only thing that's left is anarchist politics. And I would say, if there's anything that's original about the book is precisely that the answer is no. Because what you get from ecological thinking is precisely a way to get out of this eternal opposition between the one and the multiple. If you don't have the party, then you only have the multiple. Well, yes, in a sense, there is no center, no operational center for a political ecology, as much as there is no global state apparatus that we could take over. But that doesn't mean that an ecology is not full of centers and different centers play different roles and different centers center to a different extent. So the way I got to, to this was thinking through um, network theory. And in network theory, you have two extreme models of networks, which would be an absolutely decentralized network, i.e. a network in which all the nodes have the same amount of connections as every other node, and an absolutely centralized network, which would mean every node is connected to one central node, so all connections go through that one node. Now, both of these networks are actually very frail, which is why you don't encounter them in the real world, because in an absolutely centralized network, you take down the central node and that's it. Like you've killed all communication among nodes. In an absolutely decentralized network, it would take forever for information to travel from one point of the network to another. So its capacity to respond is, is also very limited. What creates what network scientists call the small world effect in networks is precisely the fact that you have what's called in network theory hubs that have a larger number of connections than your common or garden node. So you need some centers to route more traffic and connect regions of the network that are farther away from one another. So there's actually a role for centers to play. And even, I would say, a party. I'm not saying we choose the ecology over the party. What I'm saying is once you choose the ecology, the party is just there. It's just a part of the ecology. And then the question is, the way in which the question of the party was normally imposed was that there was the expectation that the party would eventually become the whole of the ecology. And I don't see any need for that. But on the other hand, I think there are functions that parties can fulfill, which they are more equipped to fulfill than other organizational forms, particularly contest elections and you know, fight within institutions. And I wouldn't have thought of that, but 
Roe versus Wade is an excellent example. You're absolutely right of ecological action. You're coming at the thing from a number of different directions. You're using a number of different strategies. You're moving public debate. You're moving legal debate within academia. You're eventually electing judges or you're electing people who are going to select the judges, etc., etc. And yeah, I would say it is effective because it is ecological, which means in response to your final question, like, could these ideas be appropriated by the right? Well, yes, absolutely. No book is protected from being used to different purposes than uh, it was, even if it's just, you know, hitting people in the head. Um, so yes, I would say. That was Rodrigo Nunes on Radicals and Conversation in-house. You can find out more about the book on bookhousebristol.com. And of course, that's Bookhouse H-A-U-S, along with details about their other forthcoming events, many of which will appear in this podcast series in due course. We'll be back later this month with episode 56 of our regular panel show and episode 4 of RIC in-house, in which Gracie Mae Bradley and Luke de Noronha talk about their fantastic new book, Against Borders, The Case for Abolition. So do come back soon for that one. Until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>